We're there in Philippians chapter number 2. And of course, on Sunday mornings, we've been going through a series entitled Rejoice. And it really is a verse-by-verse study through the book of Philippians. We find ourselves in Philippians chapter number 2 this morning. And of course, uh, what we've been learning through the book of Philippians, what the Apostle Paul has been teaching us is about joy. And you've heard me say this every time we've been in this book, but that's what this book is about. He used the word joy over and over. He used the word rejoice over and over. He's also teaching us about Jesus. And what he's actually teaching us is about the joy that can be found in Jesus. If you remember from the last time we were in Philippians, of course, last week was Father's Day, and I preached the Father's Day sermon. The Apostle Paul has been uh, talking about and emphasizing the need for unity uh, within the church. If, if you, in fact, if you just go back to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, we'll see the very famous uh, verse there that emphasizes the idea of unity. Philippians 1 verse 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast, notice, in one spirit, that speaks of unity. And uh, he says, with one mind, that speaks of unity. Striving together, that speaks of unity for the faith of the gospel. He's been emphasizing this idea of unity. He continues to emphasize that as we come into chapter number two. Notice verse one of chapter two. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, notice verse two, fulfill ye my joy that ye be, notice this work, like-minded, like-minded, speaks of unity, having the same love, speaks of unity, being of one accord speaks of unity of one mind. So he's uh, continuing this idea that we should be like-minded. We should have the same love, have one accord, have one mind. Like he said in Philippians 1.27, one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He's in this idea, and he's writing to the church of Philippi about the need for unity and the fact that we as a church of believers need to have unity if we're going to accomplish what God wants us to do. And then the Apostle Paul kind of shifts gears a little bit, and while he's explaining the need for unity, he begins to explain to us uh, this idea of relational maturity or how to be mature within personal relationships or interpersonal relationships. And you might ask, well, what does one have to do with the other? And the idea is this, that if we are going to have unity, we must have personal relational maturity. The idea is this, that you and I cannot have unity if we cannot get along. We have to be able to get along with the people aside, uh, 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 next to us and aside us, uh, uh, it, whether it's our spouse or whether it's your children, whether it's your fellow church members or co-workers or whatever it might be. Uh, if you're going to have unity, you need to get along with people. You need to have relational maturity. And the Apostle Paul begins to kind of uh, dissect that for us. We're going to dissect his words in regards to that. And here's kind of the the question just as we begin. The question that I want to ask you is, what if you could become an expert at interpersonal relationships? What, What if you could become really good at having personal relationships with 
other individuals, being able to relate with other individuals and, 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 and get along with other individuals, because that's what the Apostle Paul is going to talk to us about in the next 11 verses. This idea of interpersonal relationships and being mature enough to be able to get along with people. And we're calling it relational maturity. And if you're taking notes this morning, and I would encourage you to take notes if you don't have a baby sitting on your lap or something like that, on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to jot down some things. I want you to notice several things that the Apostle Paul brings up for us in this passage in regards to relational maturity. He begins by stating to us the principles of of relational maturity. This would be the what. What does it mean or what does it look like to be mature within your relationships, to be able to uh, get along with people and have unity? And what the Apostle Paul does, he gives us a do and a don't. And actually, he gives us a don't and a do. He begins with the negative first. Why don't you notice what he says there in verse 3? He says, let nothing be done. Here's the don't. He says, don't do this. He says, if you're going to have relational maturity, if you're going to be mature within your relationships, if you're going to get along so that you can have unity, he says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. He says, the first don't, when we talk about the principles of relational maturity, there's a big don't. What's the don't? He says, don't have vainglory. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. I want you to notice that word vainglory. It is two words put together. The word vain, you should be familiar with. Same idea as vanity. The idea of being self-absorbed. The idea of being shallow or only focused on self. And then we have the word glory. The word glory in our King James Bible is used synonymously with the word boast or brag or to show off. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, self-absorbed, showing off, bragging, being focused on self. See, you say, what is vain glory? Because the Apostle Paul says this, if you're going to have unity, you need to have relational maturity. And if you're going to have relational maturity, he says, you can't have. He says, don't. Here's the big don't. Don't have vain glory. You may ask, what exactly is vain glory? Vain glory, maybe you can write this down, is an inflated sense of self-importance. Vain glory is an exaggerated or inflated sense of your own personal self-importance. Keep your place there in Philippians. That's our text for this morning. Go with me, if you would, to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter number 6. If you're in Philippians, you're going to head backwards past the book of Ephesians into the book of Philippians. Uh, uh, you have, uh, excuse me, Galatians. You have Philippians, Ephesians, Galatians. Galatians chapter number 6. You're in uh, Philippians, you want to head back to the book of Galatians. Ephesians, Galatians. Do me a favor, when you get to Galatians chapter 6, put a ribbon or a bookmark there or something, because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. We're going to leave the book of Galatians, come back to it, so I want you to be able to get to it quickly. And I want you to notice Galatians chapter 6 and verse 3 has uh, what I think is a pretty good de definition of vain glory. In Galatians 6 and verse 3, and by the way, in Galatians, we're going to come back to Galatians and look at this idea of vain glory. But in verse 3, Paul says this, For if a man, for if a man think himself to be something... When he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. You say, what is vainglory? Vainglory is when a man or a woman thinketh himself to be something when he is nothing. 
You think more of yourself than you should. You think uh, more importantly of yourself than you should. You think that uh, things are owed to you more than uh, they should. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. Paul says this, if you're going to have unity, you need relational maturity. If you're going to have relational maturity, you have to, you, it means you have to get along with people, be able to get uh, the ability to, 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 to have friends, to have loved ones, to work with people, to strike with people, to be like-minded, to have the same love, to have the same mind, to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. And he says, you can't do that while you are practicing vainglory. He says, don't have vainglory. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. What's vainglory? When a man thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing. Now, here's a problem with pride and vainglory. And I've preached a lot about pride over the years, and I'm not going to take the time to go through all the verses on pride. But here's what I do know about pride and vainglory, that it is very difficult to identify in self It's very difficult to see in a mirror. Unfortunately, people that struggle with pride or vainglory often don't see it in themselves. They uh, don't see what is a very ugly thing to other people in themselves. Uh, I I looked up, uh, my wife helped me with this actually, and we're looking this up together, but uh, there's all sorts of questions that people can ask themselves in order to identify pride in their own lives and to identify vain glory in their own lives. I want to read these to you, and I want, and I want you to honestly, before God, ask yourself these questions. Don't just assume. Say, oh, I don't have a problem with pride. That's what prideful people would say. Oh, I'm very humble. If, you're, if you say I'm humble, you're not humble. I'm humble and I'm very proud of it. Yeah, that's a problem with that. You say, I don't need a sermon on pride. I don't need a sermon on vainglory. That's not me. Uh, well, the fact that you're thinking that, it probably is you. You got to ask yourself these questions. And honestly, ask yourself these questions because you might say, well, I don't have a problem with pride. I don't have a problem with vainglory. I don't have a problem with being self-absorbed or, or uh, just absorbed with, with, with uh, focused on myself. But these, the answers to these questions may tell you otherwise. You may struggle with pride and vainglory if you got to ask yourself this question. If you often have trouble in multiple relationships with your spouse, your in-laws, co-workers, employees, employers, neighbors, fellow church members, uh, people around you, if you often, I'm not talking about you have one problem with one person, but if you often have trouble in multiple relationships, you say, well, I fight my, my spouse. Everybody fights with their spouse. But, I, but you also fight with your in-laws. But you also fight with your co-workers. But you also fight with your boss. But you also fight with your fellow church members. But you also fight with your pastor. But you also fight with your neighbors. But you also fight with pretty much anyone and everyone that's around you. If you often have trouble in multiple relationships, you may have a problem with vainglory. Number two, if you believe, if you believe that the reason that you often have trouble in relationships. I'm, 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 I'm helping some of you out, because some of you, I know how you think. You're saying, well, yeah, I have problems with people, but it's not my fault. Well, if you believe that the reason that you often have trouble in relationships is because people are envious of your looks, money, success, etc., you have a problem with vainglory. If you said in high school, all the guys, nobody, none of the guys liked me, but they were, they were envious of my big muscles. Uh, probably not. 
And I know girls like me, but they're all envious of my good looks. I, I doubt it. If you believe the reason that you often have trouble in relationships is because people are envious of you, you have a problem with vainglory. Number three, if you always turn situations that have nothing to do with you and make them about yourself, you probably have a problem with vainglory. Number four, if you have a deep need for excessive attention and admiration, you probably have a problem with vainglory. Number five, if you are preoccupied with self and are usually only ever thinking about yourself, dreaming of unlimited success, power, brilliance, and beauty for yourself, you probably have a problem with vainglory. If you often, when speaking to others, hog the conversation or gear the conversation to always about yourself, you probably have a problem with vainglory. If you have a sense of entitlement, if you feel that people owe you or that people are there to serve you, you probably have a problem with vainglory. When you mainly have and develop relationships to exploit them for your own gain, you have a problem with vainglory. When you act like you are better than other people or act like other people are below you or when others at any point in your life, especially in work settings, have ever described you as arrogant or haughty, you have a problem with vainglory. If you don't have any or many long-term friends, you probably have a problem with vainglory. If you think you are right about everything and you never apologize, you probably have a problem with vainglory. If I asked you, when was the last time you apologized to somebody and you couldn't think of it, it would take you a long time to think about the last time you apologized to someone, you probably have a problem with vainglory. If you are a one-upper, you probably have a problem with vainglory. The truth is this, that vainglory and pride is something that is hard to see in the mirror. The funny thing is that it's very easy to see in others. And it's very difficult to see in ourselves. But vainglory is this uh, uh, over-exaggerated uh, view of self. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. And the Apostle Paul says, if you're going to have relational maturity, if you're going to get along with people and strive together for the faith of the gospel, he says there's one big don't. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. And I want you to go back, keep your place there in Galatians. We're going to come back to it. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. I want you to notice our don't again. He said, let nothing be done through, notice this word, strife or vainglory. We've been focusing in on the word vainglory, dealing with the idea of an over-exaggerated, inflated sense of importance. But I want you to notice the word strife. The word strife has to deal with contention, arguments, fights. The reason that the Apostle Paul says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, is because these two things go hand in hand. In fact, vainglory is not only an inflated self, uh, sense of self-importance, but vainglory is also the source of all relational problems. If you have a problem within your relationship, mark it down, the issue will boil down to strife and vainglory, to pride in your life. You say, I, I don't think that's true. Well, do you think the Bible's true? Let me show you what the Bible says. Go to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter number 13. If you open up your Bible, just right in the center, you'll more than likely fall in the book of Psalms. 
right after Psalms, you have the book of, Pro, uh, of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter number 13. Proverbs chapter number 13, and look at verse number 10. You say, why, don't, why can't I have vainglory if I'm going to have relational maturity? Because vainglory is an inflated self, uh, a sense of self-importance, and vainglory is the source of all relational problems. Pride is the source of all relational problems. Proverbs 13, look at verse 10. Notice what the Bible says, only by pride cometh contention. I want you to think about that. Every time you've ever had contention with someone, every time you've ever had conflict with someone, every time you've ever had a, a fight with someone, you've not gotten along with someone, you, 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 you rub someone the wrong way or they rub you the wrong way, according to the Bible, the reason for that is always pride. Pride is the underlying factor within our relational immaturity. Only by pride cometh contention, but what the well advise is wisdom. The Bible says that when we have contention, when we have fights and arguments, is because one or both, usually both sides, have an issue with their pride. Go back to Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. See, vainglory is the source of all relational problems. You cannot have relational maturity while practicing and living within vainglory. So Paul says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Notice Galatians 5 and verse 26. You say, I, I don't know. Vainglory is the source of all relational problems. I, 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 don't, I don't think that. Well, Proverbs 13.10 says, only by pride cometh contention. Galatians 5.26 says this, let us not be desirous of vainglory. Here, Paul says, you don't want to have vainglory. You say, why? Here's why. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. See, vainglory only brings about provoking one another and envying one another. Vainglory, or the being absorbed with self, thinking about self. See, you say, what's the problem with vainglory? The problem with vainglory is it constantly puts you in competition with others. And when you perceive others as being better than you or attacking you, then we provoke them. We jab at them. We fight with them. When we perceive others as being better than us, then we envy them. Or when we see them as less than us, we provoke them and jab at them and, and fight with them. And Paul says, hey, let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. He, you say, what is provoking one another, envying one another? It's strife. And strife and vainglory go together. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. So we're looking at the principles of relational maturity. Paul gives us a big don't. What's the first, what's the don't? Don't have vainglory. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Then the apostle Paul gives us a big do. He says, don't have vainglory. And then he says, do. He says, there is something that you should do if you're going to have relational maturity. You say, what is it? Notice verse 3 again. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. That's the don't. Here's the do. But in lowliness of mind. He says, but in lowliness of mind. See, if you're going to get along with people, you can't have, you must not have, the big don't is don't have vainglory. And if you're going to get along with people, you do have to have lowliness of mind. You say, what is that, lowliness of mind? What does that mean? 
Oftentimes, people have the wrong idea of lowliness or humility. Humility is what he's speaking about. Oftentimes, people think, oh, lowliness of mind is thinking of myself worse than others. Or humility is thinking of myself uh, uh, worse than other people. That is not humility. In fact, that is a false sense of humility that is actually still pride. You say, what is lowliness of mind? What is humility? Lowliness of mind is not a lowering of your self-worth, but it is a lowering of your self-rights or self-importance. The truth is this, that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. People think, oh, no, I'm a pretty humble person because I think I'm the worst person in the world. I'm just always down on myself and always talking about how big of a loser I am. Actually, that's still pride. You say, how can it be? Because you're always still only thinking about yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Lowliness is not lowering your self-worth. Lowliness is lowering your rights, your importance, your, uh, your thoughts of, of, of needing and wanting and desiring and, and being owed something. Paul says, you want to get along with people? Don't have vainglory. You want to get along with people? Do have lowliness of mind. Go to Psalm 131, if you would. Psalm 131. We were just in Proverbs. If you can open your Bible just in the center again, you'll more than likely fall in the book of Psalms. Psalm 131. Psalm 131.1 gives us a good definition of lowliness or of humility. Psalm 131.1. Because if you remember, what is vainglory? It's an inflated sense of importance. It's an inflated sense of self-importance. Psalm 131 and verse 1 says this, Lord, my heart is not haughty. The word haughty means arrogant or superior, a high view of self. He says, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. The word lofty means proud or self-important. If you ever watch somebody, because pride comes out in your, the way you carry yourself, your facial expressions, the things you say, and the way you look, and you ever looked at someone, they just look arrogant, they just look proud. Here the psalmist says, my heart is not haughty, mine eyes, uh, nor mine eyes lofty. Then he says this, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. So what is the psalmist saying? He's saying, I don't have this belief that I must insert myself into matters that are more important than I may need to insert myself into. I don't think that I have to insert myself. He says, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things to high for me. Uh, Jesus put it this way in a parable. He said, it's better for you to take the lower seat and have somebody tell you to take the higher seat than for you to take the higher seat and have somebody say, no, 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 that wasn't for you. You go sit over here. The idea is that we don't insert ourselves or make the assumption that, of course, the VIP uh, area is for me. Of course, uh, the, the most important place is for me. Of course, the position of preeminence is for me. No, loneliness says, I'm just here to serve. Amen. I'm here to be a blessing. 
And if other men praise you, if other men lift you up, if other people exalt you, then so be it. But Paul says, if you're going to get along with people, you're going to get along with people, he says, don't, don't have strife or vainglory. Do have lowliness of mind. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. I said, number one, we're going to look at the principles of relational maturity, the what. What, what is it? And, 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 and this really lays the foundation for the rest. What are we talking about? When we're talking about how to get along with people, it comes down to this. Don't see yourself as more important than you ought to see yourself. And do practice humility. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's the principle of relational maturity. Then Paul shifts into the practice of relational maturity. The principle is the what. What are we talking about? We're talking about being humble and not being proud. The practice is the how. Well, how do I do that? What does that look like? Why don't you notice what Paul says in verse 3 again? Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, notice these words, let each esteem other better than themselves. The principle is let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind. Here's the practice or the practical application. Let each esteem other better than themselves. For years, we had uh, Brother Stuckey on staff here at Verity Baptist Church. He's now a uh, missionary in the Philippines, doing a great job in the Philippines. Started two churches there uh, for us. And I remember Brother Stuckey, when he worked here, he would say to me often that Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3 is probably the most quoted verse behind the pulpit of Verity Baptist Church. Uh, he said that Philippians 2, 3 is probably the verse that I would quote the most or reference the most during preaching. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. You say, Pastor, why would you emphasize this verse so much to the point where someone would say that is the number one verse you quote? Here's why. Because without relational maturity, we cannot have unity. We cannot strive together for the faith of the gospel if we cannot be mature enough to get along with each other. You say, well, well, what does that mean? It means that we must not have vain glory. It means that we must have loneliness of mind. And then, well, how do we do it? What does that look like? Here's what it looks like. We should esteem other better than ourselves. The word esteem means to think or consider. When we esteem others better than ourselves, or we consider them more or better than us, we consider them in the sense, not in a self-worth, but in the sense that I uh, put you in a priority. I want to make you the importance. The idea is that we yield to the other party. We give them priority. We give them importance. You're there in Philippians chapter 2. Go with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12 has a verse that deals with the same idea. Romans chapter 12, if you go backwards, you have Philippians, Ephesians, Galatians, 2nd and 1st Corinthians, Romans. 2nd and 1st Corinthians, Romans. Romans chapter 12, Philippians, Ephesians, if you're going backwards, Galatians, 2nd and 1st Corinthians, Romans. Romans chapter 12. You say, what does it mean to esteem others better than themselves? Here's what it means. If the choice is between me and you, if the decision is between you and me, if, if, if one of us has to win and the other one has to lose, if one of us has to gain and the other one has to suffer a loss, if, if someone's going to get what they want and the other person's not going to get what they want, someone with relational maturity, this requires maturity. And, and, and look, 
To prove the fact that it requires maturity, you never see kids or babies or toddlers or children do this. When it comes to relational maturity, the idea is that if the choice is between me winning or you winning, me gaining or you losing, me getting what I want and you not getting what you want, the highly relationally mature individual will esteem others better than themselves. They'll say, I will yield. I will lose so you can win. I will suffer loss so you can gain. I will not get what I want so you can get what you need or what you want. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10, notice what Paul says. He says, be kindly affectioned one to another. What is that? Unity. With brotherly love, what is that? Same love, like-minded, striving together. Then he says this, in honor preferring one another. Just another way of saying esteeming others better than yourself. The word prefer means to yield, to give to the other party, to give the importance. Imagine what your marriage would look like. People often, you know, you'll come to a church like this, a very conservative church that actually believes the Bible. And we teach things like the Bible teaches that the uh, man should be the spiritual leader and the leader of the home. And we don't believe that we should lead as men for our own benefit. We should be servant leaders. We should lead for the benefit of those who follow us. And we teach that uh, ladies should submit to their husbands and be in subjection unto their husbands um, as unto the Lord, of course, as it is fit in the Lord. And people will say, well, if, if we did that, you know, then, then, then that, would, that wouldn't work or that, that, that w- they would take advantage of me or that, that they're not going to do, uh, uh, do what they're supposed to do. And, 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 and instead they opt for what the world teaches, which is 50-50 marriages where the guy runs the show 50% of the time and the lady runs the show 50% of the time. But let me remind you, those 50-50 marriages end in 60-40% of divorce. But imagine if you had a marriage where the husband woke up every day with the goal of not having strife or vainglory, but esteeming his wife better than himself. And imagine if the wife woke up every day, not with strife or vainglory, but with this idea that in honor she would prefer her husband. Imagine if, you treated, if, if, if your work environment was like that. Imagine if your family was like that. Imagine if this church was like that. The amount of work, the amount of unity, the amount of striving together. So Paul says, here's how you put it into practice. It's not just a principle. He says, you have to actually do it. You say, well, what do we do, Paul? He says, esteem others better than yourself. Let, let each esteem other better than themselves. And honor preferring one another. But then he says this. He says this. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 4. He says, we must esteem others better than ourselves. And then he says this, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. You say, I don't understand that verse. What does he mean by that? Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Does that mean I shouldn't be looking at my stuff, but looking at other people's stuff? Isn't that covetousness or envying? That's not the idea, and you're having the wrong thought if that's where uh, you're thinking. He says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. He kind of sheds some light on that in verse 21 of the same chapter. Skip over to verse 21 of Philippians chapter 2. Notice what he says. He says, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ." 
When he says in verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others, what he's saying is this, look out for the best interests of others, not just your own best interests. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Isn't this how the world teaches us to be? It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. You got to look out for number one. You got to make sure you're taken care of. Put yourself first. That's what the way the world thinks. But Paul says, no, no, no. The idea of relational maturity says we must esteem other better than ourselves, which means that we should not be looking out for our best interests, but we should be looking out for the interests of others. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. For all seek their own. Everyone's only interested in themselves. And he says, we ought to consider, we ought to esteem, we ought to prefer others. I'm just telling you, these are Paul's secrets to successful relationships. Because your outlook produces the outcome. Look, if my outlook of life is selfish, my outcome will be divisive and destructive. If my outlook is self-sacrificing, then my outcome will be edifying and unifying. And Paul says, you want to get along with people? Or do you want to know why you don't get along with people? He says, well, it's vainglory. It's because by pride, in fact, only by pride cometh contention. He says, don't have vainglory. He says, do have uh, lowliness of mind. He says, that's the principle. Then he says, the practice. He says, well, how do we do it? Here's how you do it. You esteem others better than yourself, and you look out for the best interests of others, not just yourself. So we saw, number one, the principle of relational maturity. We saw, number two, the practice of relational maturity. Then the Apostle Paul continues to develop this idea, and he gives us the pattern of relational maturity. Because you might say, well, I've never seen that happen in real life. I didn't see my parents act like that. I've never seen my boss act like that. I've never seen anybody act like that. You know, you're telling me that I'm supposed to esteem others better than myself, that I'm supposed to look out for the best interests of others, that I'm supposed to prefer others and not myself, that if I have to lose so that they can win, that I'd be willing to do that because that's what relational maturity is because only toddlers say, no, my toy. Well, you guys want to share it? No. I want that toy. Well, one of you's got to esteem the other. You know, try explaining that to four-year-olds. One of you's got to esteem the other better than yourself. You both can't play with the exact same doll. You've got 12 dolls, but you both want to play with this one. And they're looking at you like, just... The sad thing is sometimes you sit down with grown adults and you're trying to explain to them, you, you, one of you has to esteem the other better than yourself. You both can't have it your way. One of you is going to have to prefer the other. And it's like, shh, like deer in the headlights, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, Paul says there is a pattern you can follow. Notice verse 5. He says, I know you've probably never seen this before, but let me introduce you to somebody who did this really well. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Amen. Aren't we supposed to be the followers of Jesus Christ? Isn't that what they call us? Aren't we Christians? We're named after Christ. We're supposed to be like Christ. Paul says, see, 
there's a very good example of everything I've been teaching you about vainglory, about strife, and about lowliness of mind, about esteeming others better than yourself, about not looking on and only being concerned with your own things, but also looking on the things of others. He says there's a very good example, a very good pattern of that. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And I want you to notice that in verse 6, he begins to speak to us about the deity of Christ. He speaks to us about his deity or Christ's deity. Verse 6, he says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That is a very clear passage in our King James Bible affirming the deity of Christ. So what do you mean by the deity of Christ? Here's what we mean by that, is that as Bible-believing Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. Amen. That He was not just a man, He was the God-man. He was God. That God became a man, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, if you're sitting here this morning, and you don't have a King James Bible on your lap, I'm not mad at you, but let me help you uh, uh, understand some things. This verse is under attack in the modern Bible versions. Maybe you have an English Standard Version. Here's how the ESV reads Philippians 2.6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, the word grasp means to hold or grip to something. Our King James Bible says, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. What does that mean? That means that Jesus did not, when he made himself equal to God, he did not think he was robbing. He was not taking. Uh, the word rob means to take something that doesn't belong to you. He says when he equated himself to God, he was not taking God's glory in a, in, in, in a robbing type way. In fact, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. What does that mean? It means that he made himself equal with God and there was nothing wrong with it. Why? Because he was God. But the ESV says that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What that verse is saying in the ESV is that he didn't think that he could be equal with God. The King James says, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The ESV says he didn't think he could be equal with God. Look, those are two different things. People say, oh, the modern Bible versions, they just, uh, they just update the language a little bit. They pretty much say the same thing. No, they don't. Right. One is saying Jesus is God. The other one is saying Jesus did not think he could grasp equality with God. You say, oh, well, maybe that's just the ESV. Okay, how about the American Standard Version? Who, existing in the form of God, counted not the, the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped. How about the Revised Standard Version? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. People often, they make a big deal about uh, the, the Bible issues, and they act like you've got to be some theologian to understand these things. Look, you don't have to be a theologian to understand that things that are different are not the same. These two books are saying two different things. One is saying Jesus is God. The other one is saying he didn't think equality with, with God was something he could grasp, was something he could attain to. They're saying two different things. So here's a question. You say, well, maybe, you know, maybe Philippians 2.6 is wrong. Well, here's the question I have for you. Was Jesus a God or not? Look, the Bible clearly teaches, and I'm not going to take the time to go through. I'm going to, I'll, I'll give you some examples. Go to the book of John, if you would. John chapter 5. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 5. 
In our doctrinal series, I, I preached about three sermons on the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ is proven by, as proven by the statements of Scripture. The deity of Christ is proven by His personal statements. The deity of Christ is proven by His attributes. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is God. But I'll just give you some examples just to look at John 5.18. Because remember, Philippians 2.6 in our King James Bible says, Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you say, I've never heard this, the King James issue, you know, the King James Bible versus other Bible versions, I've, I've never, never heard that. We have a documentary called New World Order Bible Versions that just breaks this down for you and explains exactly uh, uh, this issue in a way that's easy to understand. And if you, you've not watched it, we'd be happy to get it for you or get you a link so you can watch it or whatever. Look, the modern Bible versions take verses out of the Bible they change the words in the verses in order to change the doctrine. They attack the deity of Christ. They attack salvation by grace through faith. They attack all sorts of major doctrines in the Bible. Philippians 2, 6 says, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The modern Bible version said that he did not think equality with God was something to be grasped. John 5, 18 says this, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him. The Jews wanted to kill him, Jesus. Why? Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Look, does the Bible teach that Jesus was equal with God? Absolutely. You say, why can that be? Because we also believe in the Trinity. The fact that there is one God that exists in three persons. In those three persons, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, they are co-equal, co-existent. They are all God. You say, are they three separate gods? No, there's one God. But there's one God that exists in three persons. You say, how can that be? Go to John chapter 1. You're there in John 5? Go to John 1. Look at verse 1. John chapter 1 and verse 1. John 1, 1 says this, in the beginning. Now, I want you to notice the first words of John chapter 1. In the beginning should remind you of the first words in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here we're told, in the beginning was the Word. Notice this, and the Word was with God. Now, if you're going to be with someone, are you separate from them? The Word was with God, meaning the Word was separate from God. Then it says, and the Word was God. Now, if the word was God, that means that they're the same as God. But if they were with God, that means that they're separate from God. You say, how can that be? It can only be explained in one thing, the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Notice, all things were made by Him. By who? The Word. And without Him, without who? Without the Word, was not anything made that was made. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the creator, that Jesus uh, is uh, the one who created. The Jehovah's Witnesses will say, oh, no, no, Jesus was the first uh, creation of, of God. The problem with that is that without him was not anything made that was made. He's not a creation. He's the creator. He is the word that was with God and that was God. You say, well, how do we know that the word was Jesus? Look at verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. According to John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, who's the only begotten of the Father? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 
See, we see the deity of Christ. Look, the Bible clearly teaches the deity of Christ, and I'm not going to take the time to, uh, to continue to... We, I've preached sermons on it, and, and I can, we can look the sermons up for you, and you can listen to them and get all sorts of references that prove it. But the point is this, that Jesus is God in the flesh. And the Apostle Paul, go back to Philippians 2, begins by talking about his deity. Now remember, remember, I'm going on a little bit of a rabbit trail here to talk about the deity of Christ because it's important. Philippians 2, 6 is important. But I want you to remember, this is not the major focus of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is not writing about this because he's writing a dissertation on the deity of Christ. He's making a point about relational maturity. He's talking about the fact that we must be willing to lower ourselves and that we must be willing to put others first, that we must be willing to esteem others better than ourselves. And he wants to give us a pattern or an example of that. So he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, he brings up the deity of Christ, his deity, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Then in verse 7, he brings, in, he brings up the humanity of Christ. Look at verse 7. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of the servant and was made in, notice these words, the likeness of men. See, we have the deity of Christ and we have the humanity of Christ. Look at verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man. 1 Timothy 3.16, you don't have to turn there, says this, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The Word was made flesh. So we see the humiliation of Christ. You say, what is the humiliation of Christ? Well, the fact that He was deity who lowered Himself and became humanity and then on top of that did not only become humanity. See, do you understand that the Lord, the fact that Jesus who was God becoming a man is a lowering of Himself? Now, if God would have came down to earth and made himself the richest, most powerful, most wealthy man, that still would have been a lowering of himself. But Jesus did not just come here and lowered himself just to the position of man. He lowered himself to the lowest man. See, we see the deity of Christ, and we see the humanity of Christ, but then we see the humility of Christ. Look at verse 7 again. But made himself of no reputation. Jesus wasn't into Facebook. Jesus wasn't trying to get a million followers on Instagram. In fact, when Jesus healed people, if you read the Gospels, he would tell people, don't tell anybody. He'd heal people and he said, don't, don't tell anybody. Don't tell people. Why? He made himself of no reputation. What? He had no need or desire for admiration. He made himself of no reputation and took upon him, notice, the form of a servant. He served. In fact, if you remember when the disciples asked Jesus who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, the Bible tells us that he girded himself and he began to wash their feet. I can't think of something more humbling than washing somebody else's feet. I don't even like washing my own feet, much less somebody else's feet. And he washed their feet and he said, the servant will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The Bible says that he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man. Notice the words. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. See, Jesus, you say, I need an example of, of, of putting others 
before myself, esteeming others better than myself, looking not on my own interests, but on the interests of others. What does that look like? Here's what it looks like. Jesus Christ. Amen. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You have to turn there. Let me just read this for you. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. He made himself poor so we could be rich. He made himself lose so that we could win. He made himself, he gave himself a loss so that we could have a game. He died so we could live. The perfect example. The perfect example of someone esteeming others better than themselves. I want you to notice something. If you go back to Philippians chapter 2 and look at verse 9. Not only do we have the humiliation of Christ, but then the Apostle Paul brings up the exaltation of Christ. Because in God's economy, you cannot have humiliation without having exaltation. In, in God's economy, the way it works with God is that the way to go up is down. And by the way, the way to go down real quick is up. You say, I don't understand. Ask Satan. I will ascend up to heaven. I will be like the Most High. And he was brought down. He was brought down. The Bible says that God resisted the proud. The Bible says that, uh, uh, that, that, that before pride, that when pride will produce, pride will produce destruction in your life. But humility will produce exaltation. See, with Jesus, we have the most extreme form of humility. God became a man, and that man wasn't the most powerful, most rich, most famous man. He was a lowly man. He was, he was born in a stable. There was no room in the inn. No, nobody admired him. Nobody, Jesus, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, uh, prophecy of Jesus, he, said, he didn't walk into a room and people just went, wow, look at him. Jesus humbled himself. The, the most extreme form of humiliation gives us the most extreme form of exaltation. Look at verse 9. Wherefore, the word wherefore means for this reason or as a result of, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. By the way, what's the most important name of, uh, of, uh, according to this passage and other passages? It's the name of Jesus. Amen. Jehovah's Witnesses, they say, oh, no, no, talk about Jehovah, talk about Jehovah. Well, the Bible says that he gave him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and, of the, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. To the glory of God the Father. Don't, don't miss verse 10. Do you see that? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow? That's not just saved people. Unsaved people too. Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. By the way, it's not just people. It's animals. It's creatures. It's angels. It's beasts. The Bible says that everyone, everyone, whether they like it or not, everyone will bow their knee to Jesus. 
They will bow their knee and proclaim. They will bow their knee that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Look, today people want to reject Christ. They want to say they don't believe in God. They want to be atheists. But let me tell you something. Every atheist will bow their knee one day and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They'll confess it right before they're thrown into hell. It won't save them. They won't get to be saved. Look, you can confess and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ right now and be saved. But whether you get saved or not, everyone will confess. At the great white throne, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have the most extreme example of humiliation. We have the most extreme example of exaltation. And Paul brings us up not to give us not to give us a lesson on the doctrine of the deity of Christ, although it's a great lesson on the doctrine of the deity of Christ. He brings us up to tell us and to teach us that if we're going to have relational maturity, if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, if we're going to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, then we must not have vainglory. Then we must have lowliness of mind. We must esteem others better than ourselves. We must look out for the benefit of others, not the benefits of ourselves. Because that's what Jesus would do. And if Jesus would do it, that's what you and I should do. I want you to notice a couple of things. I'm almost done. We'll, we'll finish up here in a minute. I just want to show you a couple of things. Go, go to 1 Peter, if you would, 1 Peter chapter 5. If you start at the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and head backwards, you have Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter. Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter. Just, just by way of conclusion, let me give you a couple of thoughts on humbling yourself. <laughs> because some of you are still like, yeah, I don't know, work for Jesus, I don't know how to work for me. When you humble yourself, you may find, you may find a couple of things that surprise you. I've already alluded to one of them or talked about one of them. The first thing is this, that when you humble yourself, God will exalt you. With God, in God's economy, the way up is down. You want God to exalt you? You lower yourself. You humble yourself. You let others go first. You let others uh, win. You let others uh, 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 gain and benefit. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5 says this, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. 1 Peter 5, 5, and be clothed with humility. Notice this, for God resisteth the proud. You, you, you want to know the fastest way to get God to be against you is to allow pride in your life. The Bible says God resisteth the proud. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Then he says this in verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. See, when you humble yourself, you may find that God will exalt you. Go to James chapter 4, if you would. You're there in First Peter. Just go backwards into the book of James. James chapter 4. We find the same idea in verse 6. James chapter 4. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud. There's a quote from the Old Testament. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. See, the way up with God is down. And the way down with God is up. You lift yourself up, and God will bring you down. He resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace to the humble. You want God to exalt you? Well, look at the example of Jesus. The most extreme form of humiliation produced the most extreme form 
of exaltation. So when you humble yourself, you might find that God exalts you. Let me give you another thought. Keep, keep your place there in James. We're going to go to the book of Hebrews here in a minute, which is right before the book of James. If you go backwards into the book of James, uh, from James into Hebrews. But go back to Philippians chapter 2 real quickly and look at verse 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 2. I want you to notice the first four words. Paul said this, Fulfill ye my joy. Fulfill ye my joy. Isn't that what we've been talking about for the last several weeks? The series is called Rejoice. Why? Because the Apostle Paul, over and over and over in the book of Philippians, uses this word, rejoice. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. He tells us to rejoice. He tells us to have joy. He uses the word rejoice over and over. He uses the word joy over and over. The book of Philippians is a book of joy. It's a book of Jesus. It's a book of the joy that can be found in Jesus. It is the epistle of joy. It is Paul teaching us to rejoice. And I want you to notice when Paul goes into this whole dissertation about how we should not have vainglory, we should have lowliness of mind, we should esteem others better than ourselves, we should look out for the benefit of others and not ourselves, we should follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He begins all that by saying in verse 2, Fulfill ye my joy. When you humble yourself, you may find not only that God exalts you, But when you humble yourself, you may find that you will experience true joy. How can that be? Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. While you turn there, let me read to you a little article. It's a little article on the subject of humility and happiness. It's a study that was done. It's very interesting. I'll read to you just a short portion of it. It says this, A fascinating study on the principle of humility and the golden rule was conducted by Bernard Rimland, director of the Institute of Child Behavioral Research. Rimland found that the happiest people are those who help others. Each person involved in the study was asked to list 10 people who they knew the best and to label them as happy or not happy. So these individuals were brought in for the study, and they were asked to list the 10 people who they knew the best. Give me a list of the people who you know the best. And they wrote down 10. Once they had written down the 10, then they were asked to label each person who they knew the best as whether they were happy or unhappy. Then they were to go through the list again. And now they were to label each one as selfish or unselfish. Using the following definition of selfishness, a stable tendency to devote one's time and resources to one's own interest and welfare, an unwillingness to inconvenience oneself for others. This is found in Rimland's book, The Altruism Paradox. In categorizing the results, Rimland found that all the people labeled happy were also labeled unselfish. He wrote that those whose activities are devoted to bringing themselves happiness are far less likely to be happy than those whose efforts are devoted to making others happy. Rimlin concluded his writing by stating, Do unto others as ye would have them do unto you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Are you there? Notice Jesus. Notice what the Bible says about Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, right? Looking unto Jesus. He's our pattern. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the, don't miss it, joy, who for the joy, the rejoicing, the happiness. I want you to notice the word joy here is in a context that is a very odd context. It's not a context in which we would put the word joy because he's about to explain to us the most humiliating aspect of the life of Christ. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Humiliation. Despising the shame. Humiliation. And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Exaltation. Here's what the Bible tells us about Jesus. That when Jesus was was, uh, experiencing humiliation, the most extreme form of humiliation which led to the most extreme form of exaltation, that he was uh, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. During all that, Jesus was experiencing this word, joy. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. See, when you humble yourself, you may find that you experience something very odd, that through humility you can experience true joy. You've heard me say it. I say it a lot, and I'll continue to say it. Because the truth of the matter is this, when you and I live for self, in the end, all we will have is ourselves. And in that, there is no joy. You say, I want to have joy in my marriage. I want to have joy in my child-rearing. I want to get along with others. I want to get along with my fellow church members. I want to get along with my pastor and my pastor's wife. I I, I want to get along with my fellow co-workers. I want to get along with my boss. Or I want to get along with my employees. I want to get along with my neighbors. I just want to get along with people. Well, you're going to need unity. In order to have unity, you'll need relational maturity. Which means you can't have vainglory. You must have lowliness of mind which means you must esteem others better than yourself. You must look out for the best interest of others rather than yourself. And if you're not sure what that looks like, Paul would say, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And look at the greatest example of humiliation and exaltation, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that, when you do that, you may be surprised that when you lower yourself, God exalts you. And when you lower yourself, you may experience joy. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul takes the time to explain to us and to dissect for us how to get along with people, how to have relational maturity. It's going to require us to stop being focused on ourselves. It's going to require some humility. Help us to remember that only by pride cometh contention. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people who learn to get along. Help us to be people who are good at interpersonal relationships. Help us to be people who are mature in our relational maturity so that we can also have unity within our marriage, within our work, within our church, within the people who live around us. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.